Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. David Hume's inquiry concerning human understanding is going to finish in section 12 titled of the academic or skeptical philosophy. And there's two terms already being used there somewhat synonymously. So we've got skeptical, right? And David Hume is a sort of mitigated, or as he's going to call it, academic skeptic of sorts. And so we've got academic as a kind of skepticism. He's already discussed in that section Descartes' rather high hyperbolic type of skepticism and said, well, it's kind of a non-starter if we take it seriously, but it can be useful in parts. And now he's going to bring up another term, Pyronian skepticism, and he's going to contrast Pyronian against academic or academical, right? And historically, there is kind of a distinction, right? The academic skepticism is arising within Plato's academy as they turn away from the original Platonism to a rather skeptical way of approaching things, and they contrast themselves against the dogmatists. What we should point out is that there is a sort of hardcore skepticism and then a probabilistic or mitigated skepticism even within Plato's academy. And then we've got this guy, Pyro, who's outside of the academy, indeed outside of the Socratic tradition, which runs through so many other things. Pyro was himself a person who taught skepticism. And we're going to see other later skeptics like Sextus Empiricus taking up the Pyronian point of view. And so in any case, these are terms that Hume is using that have some resonance to his audience who are familiar with the history of ideas. Now, the first thing he's actually going to consider is kind of outside of these distinctions. And this is at the very beginning of part two. Um, he is going to talk about this chief objection against all abstract reasonings derived from the ideas of space and time. And so he says, these are ideas which in common life and to a careless view are very clear and intelligible, right? So we're, we're used to working in space and time. We don't even need to really think about it, like I'm moving in space and existing in time right now. But there's some things that are going to arise from philosophizing or applying reason to thinking about these sorts of matters. He says, when they pass through the scrutiny of the profound sciences, and they're the chief object of these sciences, they afford principles which seem full of absurdity and contradiction. So what, what sciences is he talking about? Arithmetic, geometry, He's also thinking uh, perhaps about physics to some degree insofar as it's working from ideas abstracted away from the, the reality of space and time that we experience. So he goes on and he talks about geometricians and metaphysicians, right? And he talks about something that really bothers him and quite a few other people of his time. I don't know that we're quite so bothered by this in the present as Hume takes all of his readers to be. But let, let's see where he goes. So he tells us, no priestly dogmas have ever shocked common sense more than the doctrine of the infinite divisibility of extension. So extension, space, 
and of course time, things that can be measured with their consequences, a real quantity infinitely less than any finite quantity containing qualities infinitely less than itself, and so on infinitum. This is an edifice so bold and prodigious, it is too weighty for any pretended demonstration to support because it shocks the clearest and most natural principles of human reason. And then he says, it gets worse. So how does it get worse? What renders the matter more extraordinary, he tells us, is that these seemingly absurd opinions are supported by a chain of reasoning the clearest and more natural, nor is it possible to allow the premises without admitting the consequences. And he'll contrast the arguments about the infinite divisibility of space and time, which by the way, I mean, the integral calculus, which people are now using a lot, invented both by Newton and by Leibniz, that's been around for a while and, you know, people are instrumentalizing it, but the theory of it is, from Hume's perspective, kind of hinky. So you've got that sort of stuff over here. And then we've got all these other reasonings about geometric matters, right? That seem perfectly clear. As a matter of fact, geometry and math for a very long time were used as like the examples of things that what Hume is going to call relations of ideas. And we can definitely know about them because they're essentially abstractions. Now they kind of come together, as he says, if we think about a case like this, how can we deny that the angle of contact between a circle and its tangent, a line that's actually hitting it, is infinitely less than any rectilineal angle that as you may increase the diameter of the circle in infinitum, this angle of contact becomes still less and the angle of contact between other curves and their tangents may be infinitely less, so on in infinitum, right? And he says the demonstration of the these principles, so using reason to demonstrate it, seems as unexceptionable as that which proves three angles of a triangle to be equal to two right ones. Even though the latter opinion be natural and easy, the other big with contradiction and absurdity. So he tells us that reason itself is thrown into a kind of amazement. And he says we can do this as well with time, an infinite number of real parts of time passing in succession, exhausted one after another, appears so evident a contradiction that we wouldn't want to admit it. And yet we're stuck with these. He says how any clear distinct idea can contain circumstances contradictory to itself or to any other clear distinct idea is incomprehensible and is perhaps as absurd in a proposition as can be formed. And then he says, okay, so this actually gets us kind of off the hook. The skepticism itself is skeptical. We, we can't even make sense out of that. He says, nothing can be more skeptical or full of doubt and hesitation than this skepticism itself, which arises from the paradoxical conclusions of geometry or the science of quality. And that's all he's going to say about that. So skepticism, if we're engaging in reasoning about these matters, infinite divisibility of space and time or extension, we're going to arrive in a kind of skepticism, but then we can also be skeptical of that very skepticism and how we wound up there. So we're going to put that aside. What about what he calls moral evidence? Or rather, when we see the word moral, we tend to think in terms of ethics. This is broader. 
any matter of fact, anything that involves experience. He says that we can divide the skeptical objections to moral evidence or the reasonings concerning matter of fact into two types, popular and philosophical. So the popular objections, he says, these come from the natural weakness of the human understanding, contradictory opinions, which have been entertained in different ages and nations, variations of our judgment in sickness and health, youth and old age, prosperity and adversity, the perpetual contradiction of each particular man's opinions and sentiments with many other topics of that kind. So this is sort of like the standard take or fodder of skepticism throughout the ages, right? This is popular stuff. Hume actually considers these objections to be rather weak and to be, you know, essentially defeated by looking at common life. He says, in common life, we reason every moment concerning fact and existence, and we can't possibly subsist without continually employing the species of argument. So any popular objections derived from that must be insufficient to destroy the evidence. The great subverter of pyronism, he's saying here, or the excessive principles of skepticism is action, employment, and the occupations of common life. We can pretend to be skeptical, but we can't really be skeptical because we, we do things. And that skepticism in this Pyronian sense goes out the window once we're actually engaged in things. So popular, we're going to put that aside. What about philosophical skepticism? Here, Hume is actually going to refer us to his own doctrines that he's been developing within this work. He says, the skeptic should keep within his proper sphere and use philosophical objections, which arise from more profound researches. And Hume says, well, here he's got a better basis, right? He insists all our evidence for any matter of fact, which lies beyond the testimony of sense or memory is derived entirely from the relation of cause and effect. Okay, that's a Humean principle right, right there, right? And what about this cause and effect? He says, we have no idea of this relation than that of two objects which have been frequently conjoined together. We have no argument to convince us objects which have in our experience been frequently conjoined will likewise in other instances be conjoined in the same manner. Nothing leads us to this inference but custom or a certain instinct of our nature, uh, which may be difficult to resist, but like other instincts may be fallacious and deceitful. This is Hume's own teaching, right? His own position. And so he says, if a skeptic insists on these topics, he shows his force or rather indeed his own and our weakness. And he seems to be destroying any sort of conviction, right? So we could look at this in a Pyronian or excessive way, Hume says. And here he tells us that that's not going to work for kind of similar reasons as he's attacking the popular. He says that no durable good can ever result from it while it remains in its full force and vigor. What does that mean? So we can think of philosophical doctrines as serving some sort of purpose. And we can actually ask, as he does here, what his meaning is, what he proposes by all these curious researches. What is the skeptic really after? And here Hume is going to use some examples of people who are not skeptics, but rather what skeptics would call dogmatists. So a Copernican or Ptolemaic, this is in astronomy. Each of them has their own way of looking at it. Big controversy in the early modern age, right? Both of them 
want to figure things out about how the heavens work. Right?、Uh, he hopes to produce a conviction which will remain constant and durable with his audience. In moral life, a Stoic or Epicurean displays principles which may not only be durable but also have an effect on conduct and behavior. They tell us how we ought to live. They give us guidance in the activities of what Hume is calling common life. What about a Pyronian? Hume says a Pyronian cannot expect his philosophy will have any constant influence on the mind, or if it had, its influence would be beneficial to society. On the contrary, he must acknowledge, if he will acknowledge anything, all human life must perish if his principles universally and steadily were to prevail. All discourse, all action would immediately cease, and men remain in a total lethargy till the necessities of nature put an end to their miserable existence. I mean, that's one way of thinking about it. We could also think. Think about Pyro himself, who, according to the stories about him, had to have handlers because he would walk off a cliff otherwise. Saying, "Well, I don't know if I'm going to die if I walk off this cliff." So, you know, on the one hand, we could be like total inaction, or we could have arbitrary and unfounded and dangerous action as well. Now, he does say, though, Pyronian skepticism—you know—it can hold for a little while. It can throw oneself and others into a kind of temporary confusion, but it's not like. So that kind of skepticism is too much. It defeats itself. Hume is actually against Pyronian skepticism. What about what he's calling mitigated or academical skepticism? Well, Hume is actually a fan of that, right? He, he, it's interesting too because he says at a later point this is a small tincture of Pyronism. So it's not as if there's like a dividing line: academic or mitigated skepticism on this side, Pyronian skepticism on this side. It's it, it's really more of a continuum, right? You have you know going too far Pyronian skepticism. You can have a tincture of it, and so it's a tincture. Of that very same excessive skepticism. So, what can we do with that? He tells us this can actually be quite helpful for two main reasons. So he says that the, the majority of humankind are affirmative and dogmatical in their opinions, and they throw themselves precipitately into the principles to which they're inclined, and they don't have any indulgence for those who entertain. Opposite sentiments—they're sort of arbitrarily committed to things, and they think that they know more than they do. And this is where skepticism can actually be quite valuable. It erodes that. He says, "Could such dogmatical reasoners become sensible of the strange infirmities of human understanding?" Right, and this reflection would naturally inspire them with more modesty and reserve, and diminish their fond opinion of themselves and their prejudice against antagonists. Right, so. It'll not only help them not necessarily make their way to truth, but not fall into falsity quite so much. They also won't be so prone to reject other people's ideas. So that's a good thing, right? That's a useful thing, and could apply even to philosophers. And then Hume goes on further and says that there's another species of mitigated skepticism which may be of advantage to mankind, and which may be the natural result of the Pyronian doubts and scruples. The limitation of our inquiries to such subjects as are best adapted to the narrow capacity of the human understanding. So we restrict ourselves in. Our studies, in our arguments, in our inquiries, to what it is that we actually can make some genuine progress in—that is, the ordinary course of human life. 
He says, the imagination of a human being is naturally sublime, running without control into the most distant parts of space and time in order to avoid the objects which custom has rendered too familiar to it. Let's not do that. If we're skeptical, let's say, well, maybe we don't indulge our imagination quite so much and we stick to the things where we can actually make some genuine progress. And that would be a fruit of just the right amount of Pyronian skepticism resulting in mitigated or academic skepticism. So we can see Hume is actually a, a big supporter of skepticism, provided it's the right amount, not too excessive, not going the whole Pyronian path, but rather what he's viewing as academic skepticism. And, and he thinks this could actually be quite helpful for us as human beings. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.